Good morning, Grand Rising. Glad to be here to another episode. As you can hear, I'm down in the bayou of Louisiana. And this is Black Stories to Hashtag Black Books. We're excited to speak with Taran uh, Jackson. And this brother is phenomenal. Um, he embodies the spirit of resilience. Uh, I'm letting me tell you a story, but his story, but I, I just want to say that we have certain people in our community that are resources that we have to protect and stories that we have to share over and over generationally. And this is one of those people because of his spirit and because of his story and then because of his life's work. So, Brother Turan, how are you? Welcome to Black Stories to Tell. Good morning, Martin. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Things are great. I'm blessed, my brother. That's what's up. Um, I'm deep in the heart of Louisiana, right near a bayou. Not a lake, but a bayou. <laughs> and there's all kind of... Uh, country noises down here so <laughs> i'm out in the mosquitoes and the crickets and the um the random hunting dog who got loose <laughs> from his hunting party and <laughs> good morning and I, as i see that i think about you know a lot of people think about vacations and stuff and can you let us know um you know what led you to write we're born resilient well, what, what led me to go down this path, um, and the book, the book was titled Choosing Resilience, and, and Reborn Resilience is the platform which I speak on. Uh, I take you guys back to uh, a situation or, or a vacation, as you're talking about getting away. Go back four years ago. At that point in time, my, my, my wife and I, we were getting ready to celebrate a milestone. We're getting ready to celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary. And, you know, we were we were excited. We were looking forward to this moment. We had both been really, really busy with work. And, and she was working as a as a diversity, equity and inclusion uh, director for a large company. And she was traveling back and forth to Chicago for work. And I was traveling as an engineer quite a bit. So it seemed like we weren't having the time to spend together like we were used to having like we were planning. So we had this vacation coming up, this this milestone to celebrate, and we were really, really looking forward to being able to have this time together. So as we were getting closer and closer to it, we were both getting excited and we thought we were going to go to the Bahamas for five days and have a an another great adventure and be happy as we move forward and along with our marriage. The day before we went on this trip, I took my son, who was 12 years old, I took him to Nashville, Tennessee, and I live in Atlanta. So it was about a four-hour drive to drop him off with his aunt and uncle, tell him, son, enjoy your uncle, enjoy your cousins, have a good time. Mom and dad, we're going on this trip. We'll be back in a couple of days. So just enjoy your time away from us, and, and we'll see you next week. Come back to Atlanta and, and wife and I, we get ready to go on our trip and we, we 
like everybody that goes on vacation, you get on the plane, you're excited, you look forward to it, you touch down, everything is wonderful. We get the, you know, the the refreshing smell of of the of the seawater and the in the ocean as we were touching down. We could see that we were in paradise. See the sand on the ground when we were able to to get off the plane and start on our way to the resort. Get to the resort, first two days, phenomenal. We have us a great time. We talked a lot about a lot of different things and what our visions and hopes were moving forward through the next 15 years and many years to come of our life together. Got to have some delicious food, got to have some, you know, some nice fruity drinks, some time on the beach. We were having an amazing time. And on the third day, we had planned that we were actually going to get on a, a small boat, leave the resort, uh, board one of these uh, excursions to be able to see even more of the island. So we were thinking, okay, this adventure is going to get even better. So we wake up that morning. Things are good. She's excited about it. I'm excited about it. At 630 in the morning, we're waking up. We're going to have breakfast. Breakfast is delicious. Breakfast is good. 730, we're leaving from breakfast. We're going to the place uh, right outside the resort, the stop where the bus is going to pick us up. We're the first couple there. So we're excited, looking forward. And other couples start coming up and we're having t- small talk with them and getting to know them. Everybody is looking forward to this great day. 7.45, we're there. 8 o'clock, the bus comes and picks us up and takes us off to a marina where we're going to actually go on this tour. 8.30, we're at the marina. 8.45, we go through the line, check in. We're ready to go ahead and get pointed in the direction of our boat. 9 o'clock, we get on the boat. 9.05, the boat takes off. And five minutes later, my life changes forever. Just after we get started on this great tour, there happens to be a fuel leak. And that fuel leak, it emanates from the fuel tank that's directly underneath where Malika and I were sitting. You couldn't hear anything. Nothing seemed unusual. But the next thing I know, I was waking up face down on the surface of this boat. My right leg literally on fire. I'm knocked unconscious. Only thing that wakes me up is my leg is on fire. Look down at my other leg and I see my foot separate. I see my ankle bone out. I see blood gushing all over the place. Now there was a second boat that took off for the same tour and they were maybe about 50 or 60 yards away. And I could raise my head up and I saw the passengers on this boat and they were yelling at me, get off the boat, get off the boat, get off the boat. Here I am, I'm trying to push myself up. And as I push myself up, I crumble. I try to push myself up again and I crumble again. I didn't know it at the time, my left collarbone was broken in four places. And here I am literally on fire. The only thing that I could do was reach my right arm out and put my fingertips in the ridges on the surface of that boat and start to pull myself away, getting away from these flames until I pass out again. Now, the next thing that I knew, some of these passengers from that second boat, they were able to swim over, pull me off the boat and pull me onto their boat before there was a second explosion on that boat. So had I been on that boat a little bit longer, I definitely wouldn't have made it. As I'm trying to figure out what happened, I'm told that my wife was thrown in a different direction and she was thrown in the water and a different boat had actually picked her up. 
So I'm up here worried about my wife. I can't see her. I don't know where she is. I don't know how she's doing. But I'm told at that point that that they're going to take me to a clinic and that she's going to already be there. Now, at this point, I didn't know how badly I was injured. But just to give you an idea, I found out later through everything that I had a broken right foot, third degree burns on my right leg, a fractured pelvis, a fractured vertebrae, bruised ribs. As I mentioned, my collarbone broken in four places. Oh, and I mentioned earlier that my left foot was severed and bleeding profusely. I'm put on a stretcher as I get wheeled into this clinic and I'm praying and I'm thinking to myself, I hope that my wife is okay. I, I know that, that that this wasn't intended to happen, but we're going to be all right. And as I'm being wheeled in, I can hear her. I can't see her, but I can hear her moans, her yell. I could hear her in agony. And that hurt so much because I could do nothing about it. They put me in a space. And there's one doctor there. And when the doctor gets over to me, I ask him, how's Malika doing? And he told me that they couldn't do anything to treat me or help me at this clinic. So they were going to send me and one other passenger to the good hospital. And that Malika would be coming later. So I'm, 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 I'm reasoning to myself and I'm thinking to myself, okay, she must be doing better off than I am if they're keeping her here and they're sending me to this good hospital to get more treatment. I felt kind of at peace thinking that. And so the next thing I know, they're preparing me to go on an air ambulance to the good hospital. I get there. They put me, go through Cascan and put me in emergency surgery. And I wake up hours later. When I wake up, I'm in ICU and two doctors come in the room. And the only thing I can think of is, I hope Malika is good. I hope she's here now. And I hope she's doing better than I am. I asked the doctors, where is my wife? The doctors, they, they look at each other and then they decide that they needed to step out of the room for a moment. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I know she's coming. It wasn't a crazy question that I was asking. So I was confused as to why they didn't answer it for me. A couple minutes later, they come back in <clears throat> and they tell me, Mr. Jackson, we hate to inform you, but your wife didn't make it. And I'm up here trying to be as positive and optimistic as possible. And I am thinking to myself, oh, the plane didn't arrive with her yet or that there must be some issue. They must have been using the same plane that flew me there to fly her back and pick her up. And No. No, they said she died. She passed away at the clinic. They didn't want to tell me that before they put me on the plane to fly me to the hospital. And at that point, my heart was broken. I cried myself to sleep that night because here we were celebrating a, a, a glorious point in our life, a milestone, 15 years of marriage. And just like that, it was over and she was gone. The next morning I had to wake up and I had to do something that I never thought I'd have to do. Our son who was having a good time with his cousins and his aunt and uncle had to call him on the phone from the hospital bed 
and tell him, son, I know you thought mom and dad were going to be on vacation for a couple of days and that everything was going to be okay. We would be back home. But son, your mom's not coming back home. To have to hear the pain of our son on the other line to break that news to him was even more heartbreaking. And then later that same day, as I'm in the hospital bed, that foot that was severed, they had tried to reattach it. And I didn't know it at the time, they didn't know it, but my foot had gotten infected and it started causing infection to run through my body. And as I was laying there in the hospital bed, I could see the EKG monitor over my head and I could see all of my vitals going from green to yellow to red. And here I am thinking to myself, gosh, you've already taken my wife. I've already had to break my son's heart and tell him that his mom is no longer living. And now I'm about to to, to close my eyes what for what probably would be the last time. I could see my blood pressure. I could see my heart rate. I could see everything going to a point where it didn't look like I would be able to, to make it. And I prayed and I wondered, why? Why did we have to go through this? Why, are we, why, why, why did I have to lose my wife? I closed my eyes thinking that I wouldn't wake up again. Now, in the midst of all of this, there were things happening in the background that were working in my favor. And there was a hospital in South Florida that was, saw the story, saw what happened, and wanting to do everything they could to try to save my life. And they were orchestrating a plan to be able to get me out of the Bahamas, where the treatment wasn't great, to a place where they could actually make an attempt to save my life. My sister had found out what happened and had flown down and was trying to help facilitate everything. And that next morning, I found myself being flown to a hospital that could actually address this level of trauma. And as I got to that hospital that afternoon, they told my family, look, we've got to do whatever we can to make sure that he survives. And later that afternoon, I went through my first of eight surgeries in a matter of four days just to try to get me stable and just to try to keep me alive. Now, after I went through one day where I went through four surgeries, after I got through that, things were starting to, I was finally able to process what was happening, that Malika, that she was no longer here, that I didn't know how I was gonna be able to move forward with all of these injuries, with all of this emotional pain. How was I gonna be a father to my son knowing that his mother is gone? And it was at that moment I found myself praying and it became clear to me that if God wanted to take me, he would have taken me when that boat exploded or he would have taken me when I was in the hospital in the Bahamas or he would have taken me when I had to go through all those surgeries in that one day and I still wasn't stable, but I made it through the worst. The storm, I was still in the storm, 
but I've gotten through the worst part of it and that it was clear that he was going to keep me here. And if I was going to be here, I needed to make a choice. And that choice was not just to survive this, but to bounce back and thrive. And that was the point in which I chose to be resilient. And I knew that everything that was going to come my way, there were still plenty of obstacles to come. But by making that choice at that point to be resilient, that created a, a, a perspective and approach and a mindset to be able to face all the challenges ahead. And so that started it. That started the moment where I knew that I was going to have to fight in order to get to a point where I didn't just survive this moment, but I thrive and I get to a point where I could truly bounce back and have a life that was purposeful, fulfilling, and and to be able to do things that I never would have imagined with life where it, the way it was before that accident. So in my journey, I had to fight you know, the emotional loss. I had to deal with the pain of losing my wife and, and understanding that the life that I thought I was going to have, I was never going to be able to go back to it. What was normal to me was no longer here. And I was going to have to have a new normal, a new normal after being broken physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. I had to fight the battles of, of depression and anxiety and PTSD and survivor's remorse for me still being here and Malika not being here. This led to a journey where I had to go through so much grief counseling and therapy and spiritual uh, spiritual soul seeking. And in doing so, things became clear to me. I, I found myself being vulnerable in ways I never knew. I found myself being more authentic than I ever was. I found myself getting clarity on the types of actions and habits that I needed to develop in order to be rebuilt. And that decision to choose resilience was the key in making sure that I was able to go down this journey, go down this path, learning to walk again, learning how I didn't know how to even put money in my son's lunch account. And I had to learn how to ask for help and to get certain people to, to support me as I was trying to be rebuilt physically and emotionally and face the demons that I was, I was facing mentally after going through such traumatic loss. But in the midst of all of this, I learned lessons. And the lessons that I learned helped prepare me to be resilient, not only in that situation, but in ways that can be applied to our lives every day. And that's where my true purpose has come out in the midst of this tragedy. I now help people going through tragedy, through trauma, through some pivot or transition in their life, actually go through a transformation to start to be triumphant in the life that they want. It wasn't easy. It wasn't straightforward. There were pitfalls. There were decisions that didn't help me out through, along the way. But uh, I think back to, and this was about a year before the accident, Malika and I, we, we were having a conversation. It was one of these what if conversations. And she said, well, we said, what if something were to suddenly happen to her and she was to suddenly die? 
And she thought about it and she told me, she told me, Tyran, I wouldn't want you to grieve for too long. I wouldn't want you to hold back on living your life and being happy. And she told me a couple of other things, but the most important thing that she told me was that if she were no longer here, that she would want me to do everything that I could to make sure that the only part of her that would still be left on this earth is well taken care of. And that was our son. And that was it. The times where I I didn't want to get out of bed and do physical therapy or go see a counselor or go start to take strides to rebuild myself mentally and emotionally, I had to think about our son, Cameron, and how it was my responsibility, my duty to get myself back on my feet, literally and figuratively, and be able to be strong for him. And that was that was it. That was the motivation. That was what drove me to be resilient at times where I didn't want to be, where I didn't feel like fighting, where I didn't feel like pushing, where I didn't feel like going that extra mile in order to strive and be able to be there. In the midst of all of these injuries, the doctor said I might be able to walk after eight months, that they didn't know how I would heal and that if I did walk with the prosthetic, that it might not look normal. But knowing that I had to push myself, knowing that I had to get myself back on my feet, knowing that I had to get in the condition to give myself the best chance to to fight back, I was walking after three and a half months. And I was running. I was jogging after five months. And before I knew it, and I had never been a runner before, I'm running 5Ks just to show that, you know, it didn't matter what obstacle was in front of me or what setback that I faced, there's a way to get past it and overcome it. I, I even learned how to swim, even though I, w- I couldn't swim much to begin with, but I, I became a swimmer with one leg. And that is a lot harder than you can imagine it to be. So um, these were things that me being resilient was able to guide me to be able to do and to to be as close to a normal person as I was going to be physically. Emotionally, I had to, you know, recover after losing somebody who is your your wife, your lover, your best friend, your business partner, the person who you're 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 supporting on for your your deepest and, and, and darkest thoughts and secrets. To have that taken away, I was truly, truly grieving and truly hurt. And yet I was pushing and I was I sought out the help and the counseling and the guidance to be able to to learn how to love again, learn how to heal through that and get to a point of recovering to where I could move forward in life productively. I I had a period of time where I wanted to completely isolate myself from everybody who uh, who knew me. And that was something that I had to get past. And before I knew it. I was finding myself developing new relationships as well as as utilizing the relationships that I had in order to help me survive and not feel like everything was on myself in order to to do. And before I knew it also, I was found myself being asked to speak in front of a, a, a group to just share my story and what I'd overcome. And it's painful and hurtful and as hard of a story it was for me to tell, it became therapeutic. 
and I realized in sharing that story, it was inspiring and giving others hope that whatever they were facing, that they would be able to deal with it and get past it. And before I knew it, I was doing it more and more. And I was realizing that this was what my purpose was. This is what God wanted for me. Yeah, it was cool being an engineer and doing what I needed to to provide for my family before, but that wasn't what I was here for. My purpose was to help people who are stuck in life, who are struggling, and who need to see an example of someone bouncing back from what they've had to face. So that's led to where I am today and led to the to the to the need to have to put this story out there, to have to write this book, Choosing Resilience, because my life went from a rugged, hard, a a very dark place to a place where I've been able to overcome and in my journey, be able to show and help others how to overcome. And Choosing Resilience provides some of the specific points and lessons that others can take and apply to their lives whether they have to survive a boating explosion or whether not, or if it's something as simple as losing their car keys in the morning and being a little late for work. But choosing resilience was the key for me to being able to get my life back together. So that, my brother, is why I say you're a community stakeholder jewel that needs to be protected and <laughs> appreciated. Um, yes, all that. One of my, you know, every time I relive this, because I was, I think I was in, I believe I was in Atlanta at the same time. And I remember the news coming over and um, just thinking, wow, um, and remembering about that there were some difficulties on different cruise ships. Actually, I was a part of a protest um, on a cruise ship uh, that uh, these young women were left stranded. And the cruise ship took off without them on the island. And uh, we were protesting downtown Brooklyn. And so it just made me go back to that whole process of black folks you know, being on vac- trying to take a vacation and it's like we can't even get away from, you know, tragedy or um, stress or, you know, um, things happening to us. How did you process, you know, it's a quote unquote accident, but how did you process that, you know, looking at who's to blame and um, holding them accountable? Well, I tell you, it was difficult to get to a point where where I could accept what happened. And that's that's part of dealing with the grief. And there's there's multiple stages to this grief. And and one of the things that I had to eventually get to if I wanted to move forward and not be stuck was to accept the fact that there was nothing I could do about it. That as much as it wasn't my plan for this to happen, that it was God's plan. And that these these things happen for a reason that I may not ever understand. And with that being the case, it made it easier for me to not stress, not worry after so long about 
why it happened and who was responsible for it happening, but be more focused on, yes, it happened. Now, what am I going to do? And being angry about the 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 company that owned the boat who who spot who who runs these tours and 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 the people who were responsible for not maintaining the boat properly being angry about those things wouldn't make the situation any better and so i had to get to a place where in my heart and in my spirit i could truly forgive that this accident happened and you know there's often times where it's clear to us that we need to be grateful for a number of things that are happening in our lives and and you know there i i, I could only after a certain point just be grateful to be here because i could very easily not be here and focus on the positive things um and i'll tell you it was very hard and it still is hard to this day to talk to my son and explain to him, well, your mom's no longer here and somebody is responsible for that. But to hold that, to hold that hostility in, I know as a, as a, as a God fearing individual and man, I couldn't let that get the best of me. So there was a period of time, period of time where I was angry at God and I was mad for what happened and I was mad at who did it. But Part of my journey towards resilience was to find the strength to be able to accept what happened and not let it get the best of me. You're a better man than me, my brother. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't easy. Let me tell you, I I had to look, it's it's still times where, where I want to go back and, and, you know, let that anger out and that frustration and that it, that's that's going to always be something I'll have to deal with, but I did have to accept it to, in order to be able to move forward or else I would have been stuck and held hostage in a place emotionally and mentally and spiritually that I, I wouldn't want to be in. No, I, I understand that. And I agree, especially when you have a child. Um, yeah. Definitely. And that makes a big difference. Yeah. And living your life on your terms versus living your life repeatedly going back to the same point in your life and never moving past that point really gives the incident, the company, you know, the whole thing power. One of the things that you talked about before I went listened to your interviews in the past, uh, can you talk about the football player or the person that, that, uh, you know, came, came that popped up? and helped you out? Yes, yes. So it just so happened that there was a, a football player at the time he played for the Carolina Panthers. His name was Chris Clark. He was an offensive lineman. He and his wife, they were staying at the resort where we were as well. And when I mentioned to you about how we were, um, we were, we were one of the first people who were at the pickup point for the bus to take us to the marina to go on the trip. And as other couples came up, he and his wife, Stacy, they were one of these couples. And as we were riding on the bus to the uh, marina, 
we we started talking and getting to know them a little bit and they were living in Houston and you know they were getting away for their kids for a little bit and enjoying the you know the summertime the vacation um he and his wife were on the other boat so they saw what happened and they uh they 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 from the conversation that we were had we had before we ever took off um they they felt compelled to jump into action and help so one of the things that chris did was that when i was pulled onto their boat and got back to shore he was able he he carried me and put me on the back of a pickup truck cuz they didn't have an ambulance to take me to the clinic he he got on the truck and rode with me and as he was riding with me to this clinic I told him, I gave him information. I gave him my room number. I gave him the the information to get access to our passports and our safe. Gave him my, my mother's phone number off the top of my head, my sister's phone number. And he was able to remember all of this information. And if it wasn't for him actually being able to call my sister and let her know what happened, I probably wouldn't be here because that was something that 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 got the ball rolling to be able to get things for me to be sent to a place that could actually save my life. He he and his wife did everything that they could to try and find out how my wife was doing in the midst of the time at the clinic and even told the doctor there that, that we were family and we had only met them, you know, two hours before. And so if, if it wasn't for him though, I don't know if we would have, if I would have made it out of the Bahamas because he was able to retain all that information and was able to help get the right people involved in order for me to be able to still be here. And Chris and I, we we still we're still in contact to this day because I, I look at him and his wife as the, the the important people for me to to save my life. Essentially, if they hadn't have acted, I don't think I would have been here because uh, my family wouldn't have gotten con- they didn't get contacted until about um, about a, a day and a half after it occurred. That's when the embassy and the the they they actually started contacting my family and Malika's family to let them know what happened. So had he not did that shortly after the accident, I don't know if I would have been able to make it because the, the doctors did say when I got to Florida that had I been in the Bahamas for another two days, I definitely would have been dead. And if it would have been one more day, there's a strong chance that I would have died. So that quick and timely action to help someone that he didn't even know two hours before is part of the reason why I'm here today. That's a beautiful part of the story, a beautiful part of the community and what it means to have that tool in our toolbox of community and to be able to use it um, and rely upon it. And I think it's one of the redeeming qualities of this this uh, book 
and the storyline is because it really shows how the human experience of just meeting a person. Um, and also, you know, this, it, it does a lot to show that, uh, you know, football players aren't all dumb near themselves or just anger people, yeah. but they actually care and actually are capable of being super um, emotionally intelligent. So thank God. For yes. That. yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, well, remember everything. You know, it's crazy. So I, I'm, I'm, I was in awe that he was able to remember all that information off the top of I, his head. In that type of situation. Yes. You know, a lot. It's, it's like the adrenaline kicks in, you know, and you do amazing things when you're under that pressure. And you, you know, seeing something like that a few feet away from you and then being able to rescue the person, help bring them to the hospital. Like you said, all the information download, you know, I think you always just hope that somebody else will do, you know, you sometimes been in certain, not nothing like that, but certain situations. I always, people say, well, you know, why'd you, and I said, cause I wanted somebody else. I want somebody else to do the same thing for me. You know? So, um, but I know you got to run, so I want to make sure that the audience knows the web, the correct website address to go to, to buy Choosing Resilience and also how to follow and get in touch with you. Yes, so you can uh, find out more about the book and purchase the book at the title at choosingresilience.net. There you'll be able to learn more about the detail of the story of what all the book covers and more about uh, myself. Or you could also go to my platform. My platform is Reborn Resilient, and that is where I help coach people. I, I do keynote speaking, and I also uh, are putting more programs out to help people who are going through this uh, state of transition or dealing with trauma or tragedy in their life. And from there, you can order the book as well. So that is RebornResilient.com. So either RebornResilient.com or look up Choosing Resilience you'll be able to find information about the book and get your own copy. Yeah. You pretty much cornered the word resilient or resilience. So (laughs) I Google that. I I am, I say I embody resilience. And if if you want to see an example, a living inspiration or somebody who has shown resiliency in a, in a way that you couldn't imagine, you got them right here. So Part of part of your uh, we got we got, I think I got to test it out, but I'm gonna say part of your next speech you give somewhere and say if you want to just Google you want to see resilience just Google me. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> and this is what comes up. And there's nobody else out there saying you know saying the way you're saying it. So using um, resilience, reborn resilient. You know, just Google that and you'll see my big old smiling face. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so much brother i appreciate your time and your energy looking forward to having you on linkedin and jumping into this conversation face to face on a video format sounds great sounds great thank you martin i appreciate you keep doing what you're doing and getting these stories out there absolutely all right y'all it's been another episode of black stories to tell black books uh black stories matter Be blessed, and we'll see you in these uh, Spotify and iTunes streets. Ciao.